0: How do we live in a foreign land and how do we fit in here without being swallowed up? These are the questions that Daniel is seeking to answer. And I would propose that these are the questions that we too need answered as we try to figure out how to live out our faith here and now in Vancouver. But as we enter into the fourth chapter of Daniel, there's something surprising about it. The camera pans again, and now Nebuchadnezzar takes center stage, and he is actually the one writing this chapter. Now, a whole bunch of argument and theory is out there about, could Nebuchadnezzar really have written this? Is this from his hand? I personally think it was. I wrote about 20 pages, but then realized uh, you're not going to want that for four hours in a sermon. So if that matters to you, I can send you a bunch of resources, but I think it's best to take Daniel on its own terms. Nebuchadnezzar is the author of this chapter, and he writes, of all things, about how he came to believe in the Most High God. That's crazy. Nebuchadnezzar, the tyrant who is known for having people beheaded over the littlest things, the man who overthrew cities and erased people groups, But it's not completely surprising because so far through the book, Nebuchadnezzar has been on a sort of unintentional spiritual pilgrimage. And I say unintentional because I don't think the king saw it coming. The book opens up and he's raised Jerusalem. He overthrows the city. He destroys their temple. And he takes the treasure out of Jerusalem's temple and transports it into his own treasury. And this signified that the Babylonian gods had defeated Israel's little god. And to add insult to injury, he takes the best and brightest youths of Israel and he carts them off to Babylon. He puts them into a process of assimilation. And then they're conscripted to work for the king. But the pleasant irony is that in all of his attempts to assimilate Israel, the king himself is assimilated into Israel and its ways. And so he's on this unintentional pilgrimage. And here's a few examples of it. When Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are renamed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they first appear in the king's court in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar says, you're ten times wiser than any of my wise men. He's astonished. As we head into chapter 2, his wise men and counselors are failing them. They can't interpret the dream for the king, but Daniel comes into his courts and not only tells the king the dream, but its interpretation. And the king proclaims, surely your God is the God of gods. We go into chapter 3, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are miraculously delivered from a furnace. And the king again proclaims, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's making progress. He's acknowledged the God of Israel. He's even blessing the God of Israel, but he's yet to give his life entirely to this God, at least until now. If you're here, you're new to our church, or you're just exploring faith, we believe that faith is a journey, that it takes time to figure out who God is. It takes time to figure out if Jesus is who he said he is. Some people figure that out quickly. Some need a bit more time to journey towards an answer. But rarely are the barriers solely intellectual or the hesitations just questions that you need answered. Sometimes that is a barrier for faith. But more often than not, the barrier towards taking a step of faith in God is not out there, but in here. It is a barrier of the heart. And what we see in Nebuchadnezzar is that his barrier is pride. The king is proud. And we see that this pride is what stands between him and God. This is the barrier. And that pride is alive and well in many of us too. So here's what I hope we'll see in chapter four of Daniel this morning. God gives us his kingdom through a great descent. God gives us his kingdom through a great descent. If you have a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter four. If you don't own a Bible, as I say every week, take one of our Bibles home with you. We hope you would have that as a gift from us. Uh, Everything's on the screen behind me. We're in chapter four and we're going to jump in at verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. We can say that few people in history had the power and the prestige and the influence of Nebuchadnezzar. Very few people had what he had. At this point of time, the Babylonian Empire is established. It reigns over most of the then known world. Nebuchadnezzar has constructed Babylon, a city that was larger than New York, that history reports had a stunning beauty, it was an architectural marvel, it was full of innovation, and at the center of this empire, the center of this city, at the center of it all, is Nebuchadnezzar. And he has everything many of us dream of having, and then some. He has wealth, he has power, he has prestige, he has luxury, he has influence. And on the surface, it looks like he's living the good life, doesn't it? The passage opens and it says he's at ease and he's prospering. Other translations say he's content and he's prospering. He has ease, he has contentment, he's prospering, he's living the good life. But if that's so, why is it just one dream? One dream is all it takes for all of his ease and his contentment and his prosperity to come crashing down. He unravels. I suspect it's because deep down, Nebuchadnezzar knows in his heart of hearts what others have gone on to discover themselves as well. Even if you have it all, it's not enough. The actor and comedian Jim Carrey said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that's not the answer. The best-selling author, Jack Higgins, was asked what he would have liked to know on as a boy. And he said that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. The tennis star Boris Becker also said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed, but I had no inner peace. Even if you have it all, the world cannot fill the gap. Even if you have it all, it is not enough. A dream is all it takes for Nebuchadnezzar's ease and contentment and sense of prosperity to crumble. And this was because those things were never enough to begin with. But what we don't want to overlook is that this is also an act of God. This dream is not random. This is a God-inspired dream. This dream is meant to disrupt the king. It's actually an act of kindness from the king. To put it in the words of Jesus, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? God, in his mercy, would not let Nebuchadnezzar gain the entire world at the expense of what truly matters. He may be at ease. He may be prospering, but there is still more to life than this. And so he has a dream. And the king has a dream that deeply distresses him. It's a dream of this massive tree. In the ancient world, there is all this mythology around the tree being the sustainer of life. And so he dreams of this deeply meaningful image, a tree that is beautiful and abundant and so large that it can nourish and provide for the whole world. But then suddenly the tree is chopped down. And then the symbol changes. The tree symbolizes a person who will be reduced to the likeness of a beast. And that's where we get beauty and the beast from, in case you didn't know. Beauty and the beast. I have two young daughters. Anyways, (laughs) then there's an announcement, the sentence. Look at verse 17. This will take place so the living shall know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Once again, the king and his counselors are dismayed by a dream and they can't figure it out. And so once again, the king brings Daniel into his courts. But once Daniel understands the dream, he too is dismayed. He too is alarmed, not because he can't understand the dream, but precisely because he does understand the dream. The dream is a dire warning to Nebuchadnezzar. And how do you tactfully deliver that sort of news to the king who has people quickly beheaded? The tree symbolizes the king himself, the king who's grown strong and beautiful and provides for much of the world. But Nebuchadnezzar himself will be cut down. He will be reduced to a stump and it will go further still the king will be reduced to the likeness of a beast for a season. He will live in the wild and eat grass. And we have it in the history uh, records outside of the scriptures that Nebuchadnezzar suffered from a psychological condition later in life. We get the details here. As Daniel says in verse 32, this is all going to take place until you know this, that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I don't want to miss something here. It's important that we understand the dream. It's important we see the interpretation, but that's made very clear. So it's easy for us to overlook a subtlety to the text. Verse 19, Daniel says, may the dream be for those who hate you and for your enemies. I think that's remarkable. Daniel's in exile. Serving the king who destroyed his city, who took him out of his home and put him into a new city, who tried to assimilate him. The very same king who had just thrown his three best friends into a furnace. Daniel is serving a pagan king who was ruthless and he gets this vision of the king's demise and yet Daniel takes no pleasure in it. He's not excited that Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall. Daniel has found a way to seek the welfare of the city, to serve a king whose values do not align with his own, and yet to still truly seek after the flourishing of that king, to pray for that king, to love that king. Daniel models a love for enemy in an astonishing way. And he's dismayed, not for his own sake, but for the king's sake. And so Daniel, he attempts to help Nebuchadnezzar, He attempts to reason with Nebuchadnezzar. He encourages Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And there's something telling in this humble suggestion. It turns out there's more than a few barriers between Nebuchadnezzar and God. He may be at ease, he may be content, he may be prospering, he may be powerful, he may be successful, but that is only a one-dimensional picture of him. He is not perfect. He is flawed. He's actually the perpetrator of oppression and injustice. He is full of sins and iniquities that are not yet adequately dealt with. And yet the king takes a hard pass on Daniel's proposal. He does not want to acknowledge these sins. He does not want to humble himself. He does not want to have to change. And that's just the nature of the human heart. We prefer our own perspective of ourselves rather than the, hear the truth about ourselves. If we're going to change, we want it to be on our terms, not on someone else's terms, and certainly not on you know, a king's advisor telling him how he ought to live. And so a full year passes. And yet time has no effect on the king's heart. And I want you to hear that, especially if you're exploring faith. Time will not resolve the issues for you. Pursuit will. Sometimes that pursuit takes time. Sometimes trying to figure out if Jesus is who he said he is takes time. But time itself will not answer those questions for you. You have to be engaged. You need to use your time wisely because time itself cannot heal your heart. Nebuchadnezzar refuses to acknowledge the message of the dream. And so we're told in verse 29 at the end of these 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Do you hear it? Is this not great Babylon, which I have built? which I have built by my mighty power, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. We're seeing into the king's heart. The king, he looks at his strength. He looks at his giftedness. He looks at his accomplishments. He looks at his talent. He looks at his intellect, his power, as inherently his own. The great city is a result of his greatness. And is impressed with himself and he feels entitled to what he has because he is powerful, glorious, and majestic. A subtle resume. But it's pride. The king says, I did it, therefore I'm do it. Or it's by me, therefore it is for me. And pride is deceptive. Pride ultimately colors the way we see all of life. You begin to see life not as a gift, but as a right. You begin to see certain things of life as something you're entitled to. And so it turns you into a plagiarist of sorts. You take credit for work that isn't yours. Really, we should respond to King Nebuchadnezzar's boasting here with, really, really, Nebuchadnezzar, did you code your genetic makeup? Did you pick your ethnicity or the century you lived in? Did you choose where you were born? Did you select your family? Did you orchestrate your upbringing or all the opportunities that opened up to you? And we should ask ourselves the same questions. Pride takes these things for granted and gives you a limited view of yourself. You focus on yourself and what you've done and therefore what you are owed. And we're all prone to this. If something goes well in your life, let's say you get a raise, an award, you graduate or you get a special honor, Have you ever, I mean, in your heart of hearts, like you wouldn't say this out loud because you want friends, but have you ever thought, it's because I work harder, it's because I'm smarter, it's because I'm more talented? Have you ever thought it's because you put in the extra time, effort, and energy that therefore you actually deserve this honor? You're owed this recognition. It's pride. But pride can still be more subtle than that. Let's say your life isn't going well. Let's say things aren't panning out the way you would have hoped. Have you ever thought to yourself, I deserve more than I'm getting? I'm better than this. I should be getting more than I have. I'm owed more than what I've got. It's still pride. Even if you look at yourself and you think, I'm a failure, I'm getting exactly what I deserve. I'm not smart enough, I'm not talented enough, I'm not pretty enough. I'm getting what I'm owed. Still pride. Because your sights are still so fixed on yourself and you're still living by the narrative that you're due what you're owed. Pride creates in us an outward look that is antithetical to God and his ways. It's opposed to the kingdom of God because it refuses to receive things as a gift. But what we see is that when pride takes root in this, and this is important to see, it is of immense Priority to God to root pride out of us. Twelve months was not enough to cure the pride that was set in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, the pride that colors how he sees life and creates this unhealthy sense of entitlement. And so as he's boasting about all of his accomplishments, we're told in verse 731, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. God in his kindness gave the king a dream. God, in his kindness, gave the king a full year to repent. But Nebuchadnezzar refuses because of his pride. And so God initiates a process of deconstruction. God initiates a path of descent to reduce the king in order to deal with his pride, in order to deal with the barrier between the king and God. And so the king is stripped bare. He loses his strength and his might. He loses his reason and his intellect. He loses his power and prestige and reputation. He lost his human dignity and began behaving like an animal. And a simple Google search will show you that that's actually a true psychological phenomenon. He lost almost everything. He was reduced, but he was not destroyed. He became a stump, but he was not uprooted. It was for a season, but not forever forever. But in order to discover God's kingdom, in order to truly understand that this God is the God of all kingdoms, he had to descend. His pride had to be humbled. And sometimes what we see here is that sometimes God has to reduce us. And sometimes this descent takes place because of no fault of our own. It's happening to Nebuchadnezzar because of pride, but sometimes God allows loss in our lives because it helps achieve the same aims. J.C. Ryle is a rather famous Anglican bishop from the 19th century. Does anyone know J.C. Ryle? So famous, two people know who he is. Uh, When he turned 25 in May 1841, it appeared that Ryle had it made. He was the heir of an immense fortune, including the elegant Henbury estate. So that was about 500,000 pounds in that time, the equivalent of $87 million. He was an accomplished scholar and athlete, and he was well on his way to an influential political career. But then things took a turn. His father owned two banks and both began to struggle. And when this... Uh, became public knowledge, a run happened on the banks. If you've ever seen Mary Poppins, right? A run happens on the banks. People try to get their money out of the banks, and by the end of the day, the banks were ruined. The family went bankrupt. They were forced to sell their entire estate. They had to dismiss their servants and staff. Uh, The younger uh, children had to go live with relatives. And Raoul was forced to sell everything he owned, even his clothing, simply to survive. And for the next 20 years, although he was not obligated, he helped his father pay down the entire debt. The family endured public disgrace. Friends distanced themselves. Um, Social ties were severed. And open doors were shut. And his political career, it was over before it ever started. But this downward journey is what led Ryle into ministry six months later. And if you ever want a reason not to go into ministry, you should listen to his reason of why he went into ministry. Here's what he wrote. I never had any particular desire to become a clergyman. Great start. I became a clergyman because I felt shut up to it and saw no other course of life open to me. Bad advice. If you've got no other options, don't do (laughs) ministry. Go work for Panago. But I have not the least doubt it was all for my best. If my father's affairs had prospered and I'd never been ruined, my life, of course, would have been a very different one. And it's impossible to say what the effect of this might have been upon my soul. Ryle experienced Great loss. His family lost everything, but he did not lose his soul. God redirected his path, and through ministry, Ryle found a fire for the living God that has continued to burn brightly throughout the ages. His writings still inspire millions. But it's not just the well off or the rich or the accomplished that have to be humbled. It's not just the people who have privilege that have to go on this downward journey to discover God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom is not discovered through strength. It's discovered through weakness. It's not discovered through pride. It's discovered by humility. You don't ascend to it, rather you descend to it. And this applies to everyone equally. All of us in some way, shape or form will have to descend to inherit the kingdom of God. In my late teens and early 20s, I became quite antagonistic toward Christianity. I was in this spiritual but not religious camp. And although I'd never read anything about Christianity, I'd never read a book, I'd never opened the Bible, I had this perception that Christianity represented everything that was wrong with the world. You've probably met a version of me before. I saw it as an irrelevant, superficial religion. And as some of you know, uh, right out of high school and for several years, I was a touring musician. Uh, I was no Katy Perry, but I aspired to be. And uh, no, we were in an unremarkable Screamo band. And one memory in particular is instilled in my mind. Our band was getting marginally successful. We were touring and seeing more people coming out to shows. uh, And we had a song that was getting played and all that. And One day, a member of our band who was loosely a Christian said out of nowhere, it seemed, hey, if we ever get interviewed on Much Music, which I don't know if that still exists, but like, hey, if we're ever on Much Music, I want to make sure I give credit to God. I was just flabbergasted. I said, what are you talking about? What does God have to do with the Screamo band? Like, God has nothing to do with this. If we succeed, it's because we put in the hard work. And honestly, on the business side, I'm the one doing all the work. So if we succeed, if you're going to thank anyone, when you have that opportunity, thank me. <laughs> I said those words. <laughs> A few months later, we are actually negotiating uh, record contracts. Some of you've heard this story. Uh, we were offered the deal on the condition that they kick out the band and get a better singer, which was great for everyone but me because I was the singer. <laughs> and my world came crashing down around me. I didn't have a backup plan. I hadn't gone to any school. I'm in my early 20s at this point. My whole life was caught up into this. Every dime, every penny, every moment was put into this, and quickly it was all gone. My identity, my sense of self-worth, my friendships, it all came crumbling down around me and I was reduced. And I even began to despair of life. And it took losing what mattered most to me in that season of life for me to finally have the humility to draw near to God with the weakest prayer I have ever prayed, but a prayer that mattered. If there's a God, and I put the emphasis on if, I need you. And I meant it with every ounce of my being. If there's a God, I need you. And God answered that prayer. In the next few days, people gave me books about Christianity, which had never happened in my life before. People started talking to me about Jesus. I started meeting other musicians who were followers of Jesus. And over time, I came to see the truths about Jesus. And I don't have time to tell you all about that, but I'd be happy to grab a coffee and tell you how God has answered that prayer in my life but I tell you all of this to say, I know what it is to have been reduced and it's painful and it's not always comfortable when it happens. But now I look back on that experience with great gratitude because although I lost a lot, I gained my soul. So when a descent takes place in our lives, when we experience loss, whether it's power, loss of reputation or finances, relationships, whether it's because of your pride or circumstances. Despite all appearances, the message of Daniel is this. God is in control. And he'll give you what you need to be faithful, even in loss, even in exile. Now, I realize this view of God might make you feel a little nervous. How can we trust a God who appears to reduce us to ashes from time to time? We actually get a glimpse of God's heart in the heart of Daniel and Daniel's care and and love for the king. In Ezekiel, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a warning through a dream, a year-long window of opportunity, and finally a season of profound loss, but his goal was not to reduce the king for malicious reasons. His goal was to reduce the king so that the king could finally have the humility to receive the kingdom and find life. Yes, God sometimes removes things. Sometimes he will remove your ease. He'll remove your comfort. He'll remove your contentment. He'll remove your prosperity. But it's not because he's erratic or vindictive or cruel. It's because we've ultimately settled for lesser things. We're settling for temporary things instead of eternal things. We're settling for the world and forfeiting our souls. And so God, in his pursuit of you, will sometimes disrupt your life. We discover that Nebuchadnezzar had to journey downward. He had to descend in order to discover God's kingdom. And in this way, he gives us a surprising glimpse into the truth of this passage, the truth of how God operates God gives us his kingdom through a great descent. It's through the downward journey of Jesus that God truly gives us his kingdom. The first step of this descent is the incarnation. God came down in the person of Jesus. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very servant nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a Christ. cross. This is the great descent, that the God of the universe would have such humility to become a, hum- a human, but even descend to the point of a shameful, humiliating death on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was terribly disfigured. He was beaten and tortured. He was scourged. The whip the Romans used was embedded with nails and pieces of bone. His body would have been lacerated to the point of his muscles being exposed. A crown of thorns was pressed against his head. He would have been covered profusely in blood. And all of this took place to fulfill what Isaiah prophesied. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Nebuchadnezzar may have had to become like a beast to find life, but Christ became almost less than a human to give us life. His appearance was so marred and disfigured all to give us life, to open up his everlasting kingdom to us by descending, by coming down, by dying for us in this way, God shows us that he descends to give us his kingdom. He bears a cost we could never bear to give us life. So finally, we read in verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. As Nebuchadnezzar was humbled through his descent, he finally took his eyes off of himself. What does he say? I looked up to heaven. He acknowledged God as the true king, the God of the universe, the God over Babylon, the God over his life. But he even offered his life to this God, doesn't he here? He says all his works are right. His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar came to see this season of living as a beast, this season of being reduced as the greatest gift because it opened him up to the kingdom of God, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will last forever. God can humble the proud. God will humble the proud because it's only through humility that we can receive the kingdom of God. We're not entitled to God's kingdom. We're not entitled to eternal life. This is not a right. It's a gift. And if we're proud, we can't receive gifts. We take life and we say we deserve it. We look at salvation, we say we can earn it. But God says, that is not the way things work. I have to descend to you. I have to suffer for you in order to open up this way to my kingdom. There is no way into the kingdom of God around the cross or above the cross, but only through the cross of Christ. And in order to receive this gift, sometimes we have to let go. Sometimes we have to descend. Sometimes we lose what previously gave us ease and contentment and a sense of prosperity. But as Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Sometimes we look at this. We look at this descent and we think, Christianity just sounds like drudgery. Sounds like loss. That's not what's happening here. Losing life doesn't mean losing joy. As Nebuchadnezzar says, he now praises God. Through his loss, he learned a new joy. In the midst of suffering, he found joy. Because we will never have to lose more than Jesus did. We will never have to descend to the depths that he did for us because Jesus went to the depths of utter ruin in order to save us and open up his everlasting kingdom for us. And when we discover how far Jesus descended to save Him, save us, we will praise him. We'll praise him, not just in our minds, not just with our lips, but with our whole lives. People, if you make me say all of my own amens, we're going to be here a lot longer. Because <laughs> his kingdom endures forever. His mercy can heal even tyrants and the power of the cross can even humble and heal you. And God in his kindness is offering you this kingdom. God in his kindness descended to earth and said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. It can be yours. Lastly, and quickly, I want to speak to those of you who've been following Jesus for a while and maybe you're in a season of loss. Maybe you've been humbled in the past, but you're finding God is humbling you again. You're losing things again. And you're wondering, why is this happening? And I can't always give you those answers. Sometimes God removes things from our lives for a season only to restore them later. We see that in Job. We see that in Nebuchadnezzar here. But even if not, that was the heart of the passage last week. Even if not, even if you lose something to never have it restored to you, You are gaining everlasting life in an eternal kingdom. And more importantly, you are gaining God himself. Whatever we lose, we gain infinitely more in the ways of Jesus. So do not fear. Whatever you lose, do not fear. Whatever loss you have to face, do not fear because Christ is with you. Christ has suffered loss For you, and he became poor so that you might become rich. Do not fear.